Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What I didn't realize is how much it felt like home. I'm going to let that set for a minute because what was home like, right? Self-abandoning, people-pleasing, chaos. So it felt like what I had always known. And I, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, thought I would be rescued. I thought all of these things would just disappear and go away and not be a problem anymore. I didn't have any tool set to make it different. And so I got married and right away, I knew, like, I there were certain instances that jumped out at me where I knew that I was abandoning myself in that marriage, just like I knew I was abandoning myself as a teenager. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. 
what makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story, what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls. Domestic abuse is at crisis levels across the globe and the statistics are disturbing. And we might wonder, how do we get here as a society? We might wonder... How do women end up in a situation that is clearly horrific and yet they stay and they stay and they stay? And the story I'm sharing with you this week shows how clearly the experiences that we have in childhood can lead us to a marriage or relationship with domestic abuse. Nita's childhood was difficult. She grew up in an abusive and chaotic environment. She learned to people please and abandon her own needs over and over in her bid to keep the peace and just to survive an unsafe environment. And when she finally got the opportunity to leave home and get married, Nita felt that her husband would be able to rescue her from the life that she'd been living. And as Nita describes herself, her marriage felt just like home. But when home is abusive, and controlling and you are drawn into that familiarity you are repeating and perpetuating that cycle of abuse and that is the cycle that Nita finally decided she needed to break but not until her nine-year-old daughter came to her one day with tears streaming down her face to tell her mama daddy loves you he just shows it by being mean The light switch flicked on full in that moment and Nita vowed to leave this abusive marriage for the sake of her kids. Nita is amazing and strong and she is a survivor of epic proportions. Please join me in hearing Nita's story. Nita, thank you so much for joining me today. We've connected recently because we're both in a very similar space of mental health awareness on Instagram. I'm so excited to be able to chat to you today. I know that your childhood was tough. Would you describe growing up as quite a chaotic environment? Um, Oh, that's a conflicting thing. Even right now, my trauma brain is conflicting that question (laughs) because I want to be like, oh, no, of course it wasn't. But then I'm like, oh, yes, it was. So I was the youngest of of five children. And I am the only one that was my parents, the rest of my siblings were step siblings, and the youngest being five years older than me. So there was a lot of anger and rage from those step siblings at coming into a house with my mom. You know, I wasn't born yet, but there was already like when my parents got married, there was this rejection of my mom because my dad had, this was the sixties and he got full custody of these children. And that was very unusual for that time frame. So that, that could give you an idea of the chaos that this family was already in. Well, then he met my mom, married my mom. Three years later, I come along and there is this sense of anger among these children. 
And so here comes this little happy baby and I am resented. I am the bane of their existence because now I am the cement between my mom and my dad. And so yes, chaotic, there were um, you know, fights between, physical fights between my siblings and my parents, be it my dad or my mom. There was visits from their mom very irregularly. She was not the parent who showed up when she said she would. So then there would be that aftermath of chaos that came and flooded into the family. There was theft, there were drugs, there was um, abuses, all stemming around that family, broken family unit. So it was incredibly chaotic. And um, you know, I decided early on that I would not create that chaos for my parents. I, I decided very, very early on that I wouldn't be that kid getting the police coming to our house or having a, a fight in the hallway with my dad. And I mean, a fist fight in the hallway with my dad. I just would not cause problems for my parents. So my, um, my place in the family became the good person, the good girl. Like I was not going to create those problems. Yeah. Wow. And how did that actually present for you on a day-to-day basis? And what were you doing trying to be that good child? I don't remember ever really talking back, doing what I was asked to do, picking up other people's chores. So like if my siblings didn't do their chores, I would jump in and try to help or do their chores for my younger siblings. Now the older ones, by the time that I even got to be like that age where you're doing chores, they were already in and out of the house, right? Not really living with us primarily, but for my other brothers, like I would, I just tried to help if there was, I would cover for lies. You know, if there were lies, I always, and this is even true today, I fight this. I want to believe that you're telling me the truth. And so I will present that you're telling me the truth, even if I know you're lying. So I worked really hard in therapy to undo that because that is a really damaging behavior to overlook when somebody is clearly lying, clearly manifesting a really, really bad thing into something that it wasn't. So I, um, I really just wanted peace and I would try to create that. I never felt safe, emotionally safe. I never felt um, fully physically safe. You know, there were moments, there were times, but for the most part, I always like, I remember hiding behind my mom's leg or hiding behind my dad's leg or climbing, like when I was really little, climbing in under my dad's arm to just feel protected and safe. Um, I don't remember my siblings ever, um, like punching me or bullying me in that way, but there were other things that did happen to me when I got a little bit older that, uh, were very, very abusive. So it, um, it immediately, I suppose that I put myself in a position of pleasing others, showing up for others and completely abandoning any emotions or feelings that I had. They just weren't relevant. They weren't welcomed. And I had already told myself, I'm not going to be the problem causer. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't it? How we can adapt so well to that environment. We abandon ourselves completely and yet it just doesn't serve us in the long run, I guess, you know, because once we've learned that about ourselves and that's who we are, it's very hard to undo that. You can't just say, okay, I'm leaving home now. I'm just going to be this whole other person. (laughs) You know, that's, that's who you are. Right. So you're going to be, you're going to be that person forever. And did you feel like 
you individually had a good relationship with each of your parents? Did you feel like they were there for you? So no, no, no. (laughs) And no. Okay. (laughs) I I felt very physically safe with my dad. My mom is a very young mother and very volatile with my siblings, my step siblings. So I watched how she parented them, which was, uh, it would be classified as abusive. The things that happened to them through probably both my, my dad and my mom would have been classified as abusive, but I watched that. So I didn't want that. Um, but I knew I could not, I knew that if I opened up my emotions, for instance, one time I remember standing in front of my mom and something had happened at school and I felt so incredibly hurt by whatever it was that happened at school. And my brother was home. My youngest brother to me were very close, still are. And he sees that I'm crying because my mom is demanding something of me. I don't even remember what, but it's, she wants to know whatever is, whatever my problem is, whatever your problem is. That isn't a safe environment for me to like open up. What is your problem? What is wrong with you? And I remember standing there in the center of this room and my dad and, and her eyes are on me. My brother comes up and he gives me a hug and, and he's like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And my mom was literally just told him, she's fine. You need to just get away from her. You need, she needs to deal with this on her own. I was not fine. I was in complete turmoil. It was around the time that I was having suicidal thoughts. I was, um, at that time, I was probably between 13 and, and 15 years old, and I was completely lost, completely lost. I, I had so deeply created this emotional void, and I, I could not stand against her um, devaluation of me. As long as I was doing what I was told, what Um, you know, what I had, I had taken that role. Remember very, very early in childhood, I remember standing in the hallway with my dad and my brother, literally throwing fists at each other, saying to myself, I will never be in this situation. So then here I go, you know, let's say seven years later, six years later, and I'm a teenager and I am completely having to stand in front of this person and say, you're mean, you're mean. The same things that my siblings probably said to get into the point where they were in fistfights right? Or getting a belt or whatever their punishment may have been. It was the same exact thing, but I could not bring myself to just cross that line and, and speak my truth. So I, I just deeper and deeper and deeper abandoned myself to the point where when she actually did take me to the doctor once um, when I was probably between, I don't know, somewhere around 14, because I was having numbness in my arm. And when I went into the doctor, he asked her to leave the room and he, he asked me, he goes, well, if you have numbness in your hand and your arm, like you're describing, like it's a whole glove, that's a psychological issue. So what's going on? Immediately, everything in me went, (gasps) and he goes, well, what's, what's happening? And I, I just started backpedaling. Like the tears are falling. I am backpedaling. I am so afraid that he's going to tell my mom. And I know then I will not be safe. I, I just know this. And so I am like, everything in me is like <gasps> backpedaling, like, oh my gosh, I, I don't want to be here. And he pushes a little bit. And I, I, I say, well, are you going to have to tell my mom? And he's like, yeah. I mean, this isn't, 
the world of today where like my 15 year old has medical privacy, right? I have no rights to his medical record. This is the 15, 14 year old of, you know, the 1970s and early 80s. And I, I just remember being so terrified. And I remember that from that point on, because I did not want her to have that to lord over me, to throw out at a party or to throw out to her friends or to throw out here or to use like some badge. Oh, well, my child has this, right? I just, I, I refused to give anybody that knowledge about me. And so I told the doctor, I lied to the doctor. I did not tell the doctor what was going on. I did not tell him what I was truly feeling. I um, literally started, like when I came away from that doctor's appointment and I did not tell my mom everything that had happened or that he had said. Um, and I went kind of about the rest of my youth trying to just, you know, anytime I would have swirling chaotic thoughts, or feel like uh, something that was mean had happened to me, or I felt very unjustified, right? I don't think that's the right way to say it, but you know how if you get blamed for something that is not your fault, that you have to just like accept it because that's just the way it is. I would just accept it. And I would, even if I knew that it was her, I would just accept it. And I would just park all those chaotic thoughts over here because I did not want to go back to the doctor who would, tell her that I was thinking about suicide. I did not want, it wasn't safe. And at that time, there weren't the programs that there are now for kids who have suicidal thoughts, like peer groups and things like that. It just was so completely taboo. It's taboo now, but in the 1980s, it was overwhelmingly upside down, terrifying yeah. to even think about that. And there was a lot of things that happened before that, you know, that I had suppressed. And, and the major one of those was um, childhood sexual trauma. And that was by an immediate family member who lived in the house. And, and I still know this person and, and I, I don't resent this person. I've dealt with it in my own way. But when that w was discovered, I don't remember how it was discovered. It's, it's like a I've, I've worked with my therapist on this, but it was like an out-of-body experience. Like the um, attack happens. And then I, I literally, like the memory, I am kind of looking at it from outside of myself, like above myself. And I can see everything that happens, like almost like it's a, a global view of it happening. And then my next memory is sitting on the sofa, cuddled up next to my mom, with a great big container of hot chocolate. Now I tell you what, Dawn, it was the best hot chocolate of my life. I don't know why, but that hot chocolate was the best. And it had like all the gooey whipped cream and marshmallows and it had everything on it. And I'm curled into my mom in my footed pajamas. I'm maybe six-ish. I wasn't in school yet, so I'm pretty young. And so I know I wasn't seven, so I had to be like five or six, I think six. So I'm cuddled into my mom. I've got my knees up to my chest with that cocoa and I'm happy. I remember this. I'm happy and safe, right? I look at my mom and my mom has tears just streaming down her face. She is just crying and she is trying so hard not 
to, you know, let me see her cry, but she is just destroyed. She is destroyed. And, and we never talked about that sexual abuse. To this day, I am 51 years old and it's not something I will ever talk to my mom about. There, I did, I got no therapy after it. Uh, you know, there was no reporting of it to like child services or anything like that. I have no idea where that person ended up or if I believe they still lived with us. You know, I, I the fact that, because there was a time frame even where I wondered did that even happen? But then when I was talking to my therapist and I described the whole thing and she's like, no, that is exactly how people of childhood sexual trauma remember their trauma. And she went through all of these uh, you know, therapist words and evidences of why I've always like, it's always been in this dreamlike state. And the fact that I never had therapy meant that I just more abandoned myself because I wasn't, there was no, um, no, no result of it, no healing after it. It just happened. And then we, we hit it, we hit it. Right. And then there were these moments through my childhood where like I would you know, say I, um, 15, 16 years old and my parents would go to dinner and I would stay home. And I remember this one particular instance, um, my uncle, my mom knew my uncle was going to stop by. And I still know this uncle. He's a great guy. Um, never anything weird or inappropriate, right? Uh, but he was going to stop by. And for some reason, like I had fallen asleep. I, I actually took a nap. And my mom comes home and she comes sprinting in to where I'm at. So I'm totally asleep. She comes sprinting into where I'm at, wakes me up, like shakes me awake, and is just questioning me as though my uncle has molested me. And I am in shock. I mean, I'm in so much, like at that point, I'm in like, <gasps> you know, I'm completely just bolted away. I am groggy because I'm asleep. Well, because I'm groggy, she takes that in a completely negative way and she starts to run with it to the point where I have to literally be like, nothing at all happened. What? You know, like I literally did stand up for myself a teeny bit and ex like really, see there I was going to use the word explain instead of like, like stop it, right? But there was really, there's no reasoning with my mom when she gets she's right she's just right and that has that made for a very very abandoning childhood um and then then on the flip side of it with my dad I felt very safe with my dad I like my dad my mom and dad both taught me lots of stuff but my dad was my safe teacher I could screw up with my dad you know and and he was calm and patient rarely lost his temper he had to be pushed over the edge to get to those points where he was with my siblings um he 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 was he was just safe he was safe um yeah there was there's a new i'm going to tell you one more story there was a time when i was about two and a half to three years old it's one of my earlier memories i uh, i got lost I live out in the country at that time. I lived on the same property that I live on now, but there was none of these houses all over. And, and uh, I was home with my mom. I think my grandparents were living there and one or two of my brothers was home. But I remember going outside 
and my mom was cooking in the kitchen and I remember going outside and I followed a dog and I, I believe that I, I wanted to be away from the house, that I needed to be away from the house. So I'm just a little tiny person and I follow, I take off to follow this dog. Well, I get far enough away from the house. I'm literally crawling under the brush and that I get tired and I fall asleep. So I'm, again, I'm a tiny little person. And uh, so eventually my mom and my brothers realize I'm missing. So they call my dad who's at work, who's on the graveyard shift of uh, the mill where he worked. So he worked in a lumber mill and he's working the night shift. So she calls him and tells him I'm missing. They're yelling for me. I hear them yelling. It's still like daylight out. And because like, I woke up, I hear them yelling, but I'm not going to go to them. I don't go to them. Why wouldn't I go to them? Like now as, as a full-grown adult going through therapy, I know that I didn't go to them for a reason that day. I remember seeing them. I wasn't playing hide and seek. I, I, there was nothing in me that was playing a game. Everything in me was like, I'm going to stay right here buried under the, the brush in the dirt. I'm going to stay right here. And so I hunkered down, curled up, and that's when I fell asleep. I remember hearing them, and then I went to sleep. I'm like, mm, ain't going to happen. Well, they called my dad at work. My dad tells his boss, the whole mill comes out. Everybody who's on the night crew comes out to search for me because I am lost. I mean, they can't find me anywhere. And I don't know exactly, like if I were to think about it, I'm far enough away from my house. I'm not going to find my, my way back easily, right? I'm tiny. And uh, so I hear now by this point, it's starting to edge up on, on later in the day in dark time. When was he working? He must have been working that late afternoon shift because it was summer, but it wasn't pitch dark. It wasn't dark, dark yet. So anyhow, I remember I'm, I'm now I hear all these scary people. I don't know any of these people. There are people all, all over the mountain yelling my name. And finally, I hear my dad yelling my name. And he's close. And it, it could make me cry like to hear him tell the story. It was like, and here she came under the brush, just like a hornet, just coming out from under the brush, just as fast as she could come. And I remember that. I remember just flying under and the brush was just a foot off the ground a foot and a half off the ground and I am belly crawling out of there even though I'm small I am like down and just crawling on my belly to get out of there and there's a dog there's one of our dogs has stayed with me and I just crawl out and I just jump into my dad's arms because that was where I know that's where I was the safest and he carried me home and he took me home and um and I remember this feeling of I and I remember this so clearly, like, I don't know why my mom was so upset. I don't know why she was so upset. How sick is that? How, how sick is that? I am a not even in school child. And I am wondering why is she even upset? I can feel that today. And I am 51 years old. 51 years old. Yeah, my goodness. Oh, there's so much there, isn't there, that um, it's just really... So much self-abandonment, but interestingly, when you're sitting on the couch with your mum and she's got tears rolling down her face and you, you can sort of sense what's going on in that household and yet at no point does she really change 
her way of dealing with anything because by the time you're 15 she's still berating you for having feelings yeah isn't she completely yeah um so it's like your whole life you can be screaming in some way that this is this is not working for you in your life you can be screaming it in so many different ways and yet the people that are supposed to be caring for you just can't hear it they're just unable to change the way that they're doing things and they're just almost on autopilot and they just can't see the crisis all around them can they they can't at all and and I used to and I remembered my first I don't know three weeks in therapy my therapist saying um, I would go in and I would talk about these different things. We haven't gotten like that deep uh, yet, <laughs> but um, I would go in and I would talk about whatever, you know, the first three words were, I don't even remember at this point, but I remember her saying, I'm going to stop you right there. So you keep telling me, well, your mom does this, but you understand it because her, well, her childhood was X, Y, Z. So she had a very, very chaotic and abusive childhood. You keep excusing behavior because of her experiences. Instead of you saying, I'm not responsible for her experiences. So here I was at 50 years old. It was the first time in my life that somebody had ever said to me, you're not responsible for your mom's feelings, for your mom's childhood for your mom not seeing. That was the first time in my life that I had not, that I had the idea that I wasn't responsible for anybody's emotional self except for my own, right? That was, to me, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. I couldn't even quite comprehend what she was saying. And, um, you know, because I've always parked, well, she gets to act however she was because her, her childhood was, I mean, honestly, it was, it would make a great movie, but then you know what? So would mine. So would yours. So would that person and that person and that person, right? Mm, it yeah. is, it, it, it's just, if you're not going to heal through it, you're going to turn around and you're going to bleed all over everybody else around you. And you're going to push them into spaces where they have to be self-abandoning or chaotic or, 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 right? All of the step siblings of mine had been abandoned by a mother, had a father who was trying his absolute best, but then had a stepmother in absolute chaos who wasn't that much older than them. She and my dad were 15 years apart in age. So she had a 12-year-old child and she's like 20. You know, the oldest, the oldest sibling was 12. She didn't stand a chance. She didn't stand yeah. a chance with those step siblings. And unfortunately, the step-siblings, you know, like the oldest one, she died of drug overdose, a drug overdose years ago, years and years ago, her path, her path just went into pain and, and, and all three of the oldest step-siblings, their path went into severe pain. Their lives have just worked just chaos, just <sighs> chaos. The two oldest have passed away. One brother, he's, he's just had a life of chaos. He lives a long ways away from here. But myself and the youngest of those siblings, we have um, really worked hard through therapy, mine more recent, um, but we've worked really hard to write those individual lacking so that we're no longer there. 
Yeah. It was a brave thing. Like, like when my therapist said that, I was like, oh, you're wrong. You're wrong. I am totally responsible for her feelings. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> She's like, no, you're not. <laughs> Oh, I just love those light bulb moments though. Like it doesn't matter what age we get to. How come nobody has told me this yet? (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you, you've been in a, in a bad place, quite suicidal I mean, did you take your first opportunity to leave home? Is Was that your path? No. Um, so one of the things with, I don't even know how to explain it best. So my mom very much like control, 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 control. Did I say control? Let's just focus on control. <laughs> I'm not sure you understand. <laughs> so so she just she just wants what she wants and anything that doesn't doesn't fit into what she wants then there's this punishment level so I graduated high school and I had a, a family friend who wanted to pay for me to go to college he was willing to pay for four years of college because he believed so deeply in education in my house um, they wanted you to get good grades but there was no belief in education and there was no support for education. And I, by support, I mean time to do your homework, um, space to, you know, go to the study groups at school, like those kind of things. It was all get good grades, but you should, you should go, um, let's go shopping. Let's go do this. Let's do that. You need to do this. Like more of a, you know, like if you had an unhealthy friend who didn't have your best interest at heart, right? So when I got to the point where um, I was going to go to college, there was, um, uh, my mom kind of rebelled against that idea. So I went to college for a year, but it was hard because I wasn't, um, I don't know if I want to say allowed because I was 18, but I wasn't supported to move out. I was very, you know, by this point, I have developed into a massive people pleaser. My worth and my value is in everybody else's hands and their pockets. So, you know, the, any disapproval, I have a really hard time with. Well, of course, she, that's perfect for somebody who wants control and manipulation, right? They, they own you. Um, I also had dogs, animals. We, this is a farm. We lived on a farm. And so I had animals that, uh, you know, still lived on this property. And uh, I had horses. They gave me a horse when I was 16. And so we had horses. And she, like, when I did try to move out, 
I was required to come out twice a day to feed all the animals, to water all the animals, to take care of the animals. There was, there literally was, if you're not going to get rid of all your animals, we don't want you to get rid of them. But if you're going to get rid of them, we can't get rid of them. You know, there's this complete mixed message. But at the end of the day, you need to come out here and feed them. And you need to come out here and water them. And it, it was unrealistic to try to move out because there, it's, this, it's this gripping double, double talk, right? Why don't you get rid of the horses? Don't get rid of the horses. Don't get rid of the horses. Don't get rid of the horses. No matter which direction you started to move, the tide would shift. And then you're like on the wrong side of it. And so I would shift back and then it would shift the other way. So it was always keeping me in this state of um, pleasing, this state of showing up. So moving out really didn't go well. Even, even when I attempted a um, very weak attempt, <laughs> I, I, it just didn't work. And within a year, I quit going to college because it was, it was honestly, it was the same thing as high school. Very difficult to perform because I just never felt supported. I felt mocked. I felt, we're the salt of the earth. Why do you need to educate yourself? Is it, if, here's a good one. If pumping gas, is good enough for, I can't even remember a person's name, but for let's say Bob, then it's good enough for my child. If cleaning houses, cleaning houses is good enough for you. Well, I'm sorry, but if, if I'm cleaning houses for my children, I'm doing that because I want them to have a better chance and a better, right? I'm doing that to give them a, a good childhood, a good life, not because I want them to turn around and go into um, you know, starter labor. And, and she just, there's a certain pride, like a salt of the earth pride that I have never understood at all. And, and to this day, it still is something that we disagree on. Only now I have a voice, right. And, and an action that goes with the voice. So it's, um, it was a very, very held accountable. You're not going to do any of those things like moving out. You know, this, this is not going to happen. You're not going to be successful yeah. at it because I'm going to make things so unsuccessful here. And I honestly just wasn't strong enough, Dawn. I wasn't strong enough to get rid of all the animals. I wasn't strong enough to make those decisions to get rid of the horses, to close up shop on my childhood life and start an adult life. Yeah. I had never, never, ever uh, created, like in my mind, I had never created the ability for me to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah, well, nobody had ever allowed you to. If you, no. if somebody's made decisions for you your whole life, I mean, it's very hard to, doesn't matter how old you get to, make a decision for yourself because how can you if you don't know how to do it? It's very, very yeah. hard, isn't it? But at some point you, you did leave home and get married. What age were you when that happened? So I think we met when we were, when I was 18 and we got married four years later. And so I got married around 22, 21, 22, and I think 22. And um, we met where I worked, where he worked. We both worked there and we, you know, dated that whole time. Um, what I didn't realize is how much it felt like home. I'm going to let that set for a minute because what was home like, right? Self-abandoning, people-pleasing, chaos. So 
it felt like what I had always known. And I, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, thought I would be rescued. I thought all of these things would just disappear and go away and not be a problem anymore. I didn't have any tool set to make it different. And so I got married and we um, started our little life together. And um, right away, I knew, like, I there were certain instances that jumped out at me where I knew that I was abandoning myself in that marriage, just like I knew I was abandoning myself as a teenager or as a you know, 10-year-old or a seven-year-old or a three, three four-year-old. I knew, but I didn't know what to do about it. And I just thought that that was normal. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting, isn't it? That instead of finding somebody who is like this breath of fresh air, who is completely different to what we know, we are so attracted to that comfort, the thing that we've known all our lives. It's always difficult for me to understand that because it just doesn't make sense, but it's pretty much what happens to everybody I think when I when I I didn't know that when I got married I didn't know that you know the first 10 years or the second 10 years but there came a point where our you know at three years in to the marriage I thought oh I just don't know if this is where I should be but like a good girl like I oh marriage is forever and he's not hitting me I'll stay and then around five years and then eight years. And then at 10 years, we were pregnant. So those repetitive cycles, we kept like, I would go back to like, God, is this normal? Do other people have these problems? This, this, you know, I didn't know then gaslighting. Uh, I didn't know emotional abuse, verbal abuse. I, I didn't know any of that stuff. I didn't know what I, what I learned later. Right. So then at 10 years, um, I, I am finally pregnant and we have had a decade with no birth control at all and no pregnancies and one possible miscarriage, but no evidence of it. Right. Which is kind of, I'm pretty sure, but I finally end up pregnant. And so, uh, I'm ecstatic. I had literally just started talking about like, we're going to be adopting. And he was like, Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> Right. So I was really freaking him out because I was so, I knew I, I wanted children and now I'm 30 or something years old. And that I, and I, I'm just not going to be waiting forever and I'm not going to not have children. And so I just, you know, stopped caffeine and boom, I'm pregnant. And I ended up with twins and it was just like, for me, I was in heaven, right? All of the other little tiny things just slid away. I am now living the dream because I am pregnant and I am having twins. So it is phenomenal. Like everything I've ever dreamed of is happening right now. And, um, you know, kind of fast forward, I had the safest twins pregnancy. We, they all had their own separate everything. And we get to, we're, we're at kind of towards 36, 37 weeks and we're in weekly visits to go in for the ultrasound. We're also seeing a specialist because I'm over 30 and we go in for our normal ultrasound. And on the way in, I remember so clearly, like I'm in tears. We're just driving down this road. We get down to the bottom of the road and he, my ex, he's mad. He is very, very mad because 
he had, I think, forgotten that we had this standing weekly appointment and I'm no longer able to drive myself. I can't safely sit behind the wheel. It's twins. And even though I'm tall, like I am very, very pronounced on where these little people are sitting and they're sitting right out in front of me. And so he's mad. I, this is the happiest time of my life. And my, my ex is irritated that he's going to miss work. He is, he's angry. And I remember looking in the mirror and I am trying to not cry, but the, like there's tears like starting to fall and I feel him just get even angrier. And I, I just like, again, in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think this is normal. Right. But here I am pregnant with twins weeks from delivering. And, and I'm thinking, I don't feel very safe. I don't feel no, like this, like, right. I, I'm not, I feel like, oh, I can't even tell you what I'm feeling right now. So we go to the doctor and we have an ultrasound and we've gotten to know the ultrasound, like the, the whole clinic or the whole doctor's office very well. So immediately I knew that something was wrong because the gal's doing the ultrasound and that ultrasound machine, you know, that they did the external one where they do on your tummy what was that? The paddle. So it's a paddle. And it, she just starts zipping it from side to side of my body, of my tummy looking. And I knew what she was looking for. I knew already that one of my boys had died. And I just knew it all through me that, some, that one of them or both of them was going to die. I just knew it because nothing, nothing good could possibly happen for me. Right. I knew it through and through from the minute that I got pregnant with him, I knew that one or both wouldn't live. I just knew it. And then here it was, we're in there having that ultrasound. He's angry. And I feel her jerking around. And I said, what is wrong? And she just won't say anything. And I said, you can't find a heartbeat, can you? And she said, I'm going to get the doctor. And I, in that moment, Don, I couldn't even, I couldn't even cry. I couldn't speak up for myself. I couldn't say, you're going to tell me right now. I couldn't say anything. I was like my, my voice. I had no voice. I literally just went internal. And of course the doctor comes in and they have one baby's heartbeat, not the other. So baby B had died. And I, I like the whole world just started spinning out of control. I just, I couldn't function. Um, but at the same time, I could do whatever they asked of me, right? Like, um, we we're going to have you get up, get dressed. We're going to sit you down in this chair. No, you can't drink any water. Do you want to have a natural birth or a C-section? And I'm like, uh, right. And I, I had to turn that over to him to decide. The person who is pissed at me for driving me to the doctor is now going to decide what kind of childbirth I'm going to have. Because I, I, I had no uh, sense of ability to make that decision myself and it wasn't in the right mental space. And, um, so he, he had all of those decisions moving forward and thankfully he chose cesarean section because we wanted to be sure that, um, baby a had the best chance of survival. So labor could stress him. And, um, we wanted to just be sure that he had the best chance to survive. So we were um, rushed into an emergency C-section and baby A, who he named, like we knew the names, we knew the names were gonna be Isaiah and Noah. 
But when the doctor turned to me and he said, we're delivering baby A, is this Isaiah or is this Noah? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> like I'm laying on the C-section table strapped down. Are you kidding me? Like, I don't know. I don't know. You name him. That's what I was thinking. Like, whatever name you want to give him, doctor, I really don't care. <laughs> like, just let's get through this. And, um, you know, so my ex, uh, he, he knew that baby A was Isaiah and baby B was Noah. And so Isaiah came out, my oldest, and he just was screaming, like the loudest, most beautiful scream that you could ever hear as a mother. You'll know what I mean. When those babies come out and they scream and you're like, oh, oh, this can be okay. Right. And he didn't have Down syndrome. There was a big factor risk for Down syndrome. And I, I refused to abort them based on this risk factor. So here we have just delivered a healthy baby without Down syndrome. And so he gets rushed off to neonatal care. He's fine, stable, but they are, we still have another baby to deliver. And I'm in no condition for a newborn while I'm delivering this other baby. And so he gets rushed off and then they deliver Noah. And I can hear, now through this, I've heard other women talk during their deliveries, right? That they talk to a C-section and then they talk to the doctor. I didn't, I couldn't talk at all. I, I was so internal. I couldn't tell them that's uncomfortable, what's happening, you know, nothing at all. I could just sit there with tears just running down my face. That's all I could do. And, uh, and even, even when I got the, the cesarean shot, my doctor sat, my OB sat and held my hand while I got that. And that was the most calm and peaceful moment that I, I mean, I will carry that till the day I die, that his piece is what got me into getting that surgery. Nobody else's because my ex was, you know, lost. He was in uh, his own chaos, right? He has his own panic disorder and his own things that he carries. And so, and I, I did not want to see any of the parents. Nope, <laughs> not one of your parents gets to come in here. Uh, and my dad had already passed by this point. So um, they then deliver baby B, Noah, and it's a like they're having a really tough time delivering him. And remember, this is cesarean. And I hear the doctor when they finally get to where he is, because again, they have their own separate everything, separate umbilical cords, separate sacs, everything. And they get to where he is. And I actually hear my doctor and the on-call pediatric doctor go, <gasps> And I, I, I am stunned. I, I don't know what. And I, I didn't say anything that I remember, but I, my doctor looked over that curtain and he said, everything's okay. We have found, um, you know, we've gotten to Noah and he just has the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. So it's gonna take us a little bit of time to get him delivered. Um, he had his, the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck four times. And he just slowly died. And they delivered a perfectly healthy baby. And so then that catapulted us, that delivery, those, those twins, that birth, right? So had an interesting thing that I've learned, like had they both lived, um, I would have still been right in that spot of, oh my gosh, my husband was mad at me when we went to the doctor, right? And that would have grown and built that resentment and anger that he had 
and my fear. So we would have like had to, there would have been a burst of that bubble. But instead, uh, fate took a different turn and Noah died and Isaiah was healthy and fine. He actually lost weight and got down to like 3.9 ounces or something. I mean, he got really, really small, um, but he was healthy and fine. <clears throat> and I became a stay-at-home mom. I gave up my career in that moment and became a stay-at-home mom with Isaiah. And we went into a love bombing cycle. So we went from uh, you know, anger and resentment building on, you know, you could just feel like the danger building, that rage danger building to dad of the world, you know, um, father, husband, everything of being a part of that, that family. So we just, it launched us into a love bombing cycle that in my grief state, um, it's, I've probably grieved four or five years. Even now it still hits me. All these years later, it's, it, this loss hits me, massive. And it threw me back into not questioning my marriage. And, you know, thank God it did. Quite honestly, Don, thank God it did. Because we went on to have Elijah two years later. 18 months later, we had Gideon. And then two, three years later, we had our final chapter, Sarah. And you know, I would not change that part of my journey at all. These children are amazing. They are supposed to be here. So, you know, thank goodness things turned out the way that they did. And I've even come to grips um, with, with the loss of Noah because, you know, God or my higher power, whatever people believe, but for me, God has a plan for these children and he needed things to happen the way that they happened. And I, um, uh, have stopped hating him a long time ago um, but it was that was a really difficult point in my life oh absolutely and I just want to say how sorry I am for that loss and these things never ever leave us it's something that you have to carry but just the fact that nobody was there to hold your hand except for a doctor it yeah. was it was a really interesting thing and even then i couldn't put a name to it and, and today's probably the first time that i've ever actually realized like i felt very safe with him that guy didn't feel that safety with anybody else and and yeah that explains a whole bunch now there yeah. it absolutely just makes a whole bunch of stuff fall into place yeah We're going to leave Nita's story there for this week. The conversation that I had with Nita was a really in-depth conversation and there's so much more that she has to share with us. So I've created part two, which will be coming out next week. So please tune back in here next week to hear the rest of Nita's story. show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode come and follow me on instagram at my big love project drop a review if you're listening on apple podcasts and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it 
You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.